ESPN Audio and the undefeated proudly partner in the intersection where sports and social justice meet. Now alongside L. Duncan, here's Clinton Yates. It's a hectic Thursday, kiddos. You're listening to The Intersection on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app and Sirius XM Channel 80. The show is presented by Progressive Insurance, and all guests on the program appear via the Shell Penzoil Performance Line. My name is Clinton Yates. L. Duncan is my co-host. You can tweet us at Clinton Yates, at L. Duncan ESPN, or you can join the discussion, 888-ESPN, 1-888-729-3776. lot going on around the sports world. Chiefs up on the Texans, 17-7 at halftime out there in Kansas City. We also got Serena, the GOAT. You can check out my work about that unless you need convincing, which, you, which if you do, we have a problem. That's a separate discussion. She's playing right now against Azarenka, watching that live in full time. So, look, Naomi Osaka obviously just wanted to go to the final as well, and she has come up to the stage, to the court, come up big, L, mm-hmm. big as far as I'm concerned in terms of what she's been representing with the names of victims of police brutality on her mask. You see her. You see YBN Corday, my man, her man, out there in the crowd representing this black love that I like. And I'm being kind of flippant here, but what I'm saying is that the entire image that she is presenting as who she is in America right now, L, what does that signal to you about who she is and what she's trying to say? Yeah, someone that's young and, again, like finding her voice, which is really what we've seen permeate at the college football levels and what we've seen from uh, even the Coco Goffs of the world, right, who is sort Mm. of this lovable America sweetheart and, like, you know, shy and just so happy to be here. And at the very beginning of her career, we saw her out in the streets protesting and and talking about, you know, generational trauma. And to see Naomi Osaka, someone that it has seemed like, at least for a lot of us in the media, it's taken her a couple of years to really find her voice. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, just any voice, right? Like she's very sort of sheepish and shy. She hasn't had a lot of media training. I know specifically that her team has been working on her with that to make her a little bit more, uh, you know, commercial and have more commercial appeal but the idea that she can get so much done and say so much by simply wearing face masks with victims of police brutality um, I just think is so incredibly special for someone that's still again trying to find her way has been vocal about mental health who's like already sort of experienced the ups and downs of becoming somewhat of an overnight sensation and and just to see her take full ownership of this and to see her sort of champion these causes uh, in let's be frank, like uh, an, a, a, an environment that has not exactly been at the forefront of social injustice, or one that's necessarily got a huge black viewership, I think is really remarkable. I think it is too, and I think that also it's worth noting that any criticism towards Naomi Osaka not being vocal enough is wildly unfair. Let us not forget what happened in that U.S. Open final with Serena. That was a deeply traumatic an unnecessarily hectic situation that I'm sure there will be effects of on throughout her career just in terms of what she's willing to say in public. Let's not forget Serena, again, wasn't the only one there. You know, they embarrassed everybody Mm -hmm. when that whole situation went down, and I'm sure that's affected Naomi. And so I'm with you. I'm glad to see that she has been able to come out and go at the pace that she needs. You know what I'm saying? Because we're all Mm -hmm. here. Let's not forget that she was the one well before the U.S. Open started who just said, I'm good, I'm not playing today. How about yep. that? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Why don't you go ahead on and, you know, serve that to your line judge? You know what I'm saying? And she just she just didn't play, and it was an excellent, excellent indication of just what you can do without necessarily being in a sport in which you have a whole team behind you. 
You're listening to The Intersection on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app and Sirius XM Channel 80. L. Duncan, Clinton Yates, joining us right now, by the way, on the Shell Penzoar performance line is James Blake, ESPN tennis analyst. Mr. Blake, glad to have you on the program. Your entanglements with various law enforcement communities have been well documented overall. But as a guy in tennis, can you just tell me about what you feel you're seeing on the court right now? in Naomi and in where Serena's trying to get to overall, as much as they are sort of conflated or not, you know, we all here together. What are you looking at in terms of your view? Well, um, in terms of tennis, it's incredibly impressive what they're doing. Um, Serena, 38 years old, um, being a mom, uh, playing another mom in Azarenka and still at the absolute top of the game is really incredible. Her serve is still as effective as ever, and she's moving great. So impressive there. Osaka has been playing unbelievable. The only question mark she's ever had this entire two weeks is her uh, hamstring injury, whether that's okay. But it looked great tonight. Um, and then what she's done in terms of um, taking a day off for social injustice, uh, it's it's so really impressive. It's, it's courageous, really, because she, she plays an individual sport where you're putting so much more pressure on yourself. You don't have a team surrounding you. You don't have... Um, you don't have that necessarily like built-in support, and you're already in a high-pressure situation when you're by yourself, when you're out there alone. Um, you're a multiple Grand Slam champion. You're the highest-paid female in the world, so you're, you're risking lots of endorsements. You're risking everything else that's out there, and you're putting a target on your back even more so because you're um, you, you're forcing yourself to focus on something besides tennis, which she gets at a young age incredibly. Um, that there are things more important than tennis. So many people that are in an individual sport tend to believe that there's no world outside of the small, like, bubble or whatever you want to call it that they're in uh, throughout their their careers. James, I have to ask you, because Clinton sort of mentioned it, you were really vocal this summer about your run-in with police brutality a few years back for mistaken identity and how you were treated. And again, like we're seeing this from Naomi Osaka at 22 years old, just like we're seeing it from a lot of really young people who are sort of owning their spaces and understanding that they do have a voice and a platform. But what was that like for you? Because right now it's very brave for everyone to speak about these things, um, at least publicly and sometimes on Twitter. But what was that like for you when you shared sort of your run-in and how did it feel like, how did you come to terms with having that catharsis and being public about it well it was actually relatively quick it was the first call i made you know you you grow up being an athlete you want to say you know you can tough whatever out no matter what happens to you you can you can just handle it and move on and i called my wife was the first person i called to talk about uh, what happened and um she just pretty quickly i mean she was shocked and um, appalled at what happened, and then she just said, "What if that had happened to me? What if that had happened to your brother? What if that had happened to someone else you love?" And it instantly clicked in my head. I, I, I can't let this go. I can't um, because there's too many times when this happens to instead of James Blake, the tennis player, it happens to James Blake, the accountant, James Blake, the lawyer, James Blake, the the plumber, the you know the the frontline worker that doesn't have any sort of resources to uh, to make anything happen or any voice to really get any sort of accountability. And I realized I do. I'm lucky enough because I'm James Blake, the tennis player, that I can go to the media and I can find out who these police officers were because um, through the power of the media, I was able to do that. I wouldn't have been able to do that had I been because I was, you know, pretty taken aback. I was in shock. I was um, totally out of it in, in terms of my mentality at that at that point because I was so vulnerable and, and just um, really still in shock. So. I didn't have the time to get their names, their badge numbers, precinct, anything like that. 
um, but I wanted to do something to hold them accountable for all the times that happened when no one was able to do that. So it made it really easy uh, for me at that point to say, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to try to do something. And then I was extremely vocal at the time. And it's really encouraging to see now that there's so many people speaking up because there's more people listening now. When I was yelling and screaming and going crazy about this five years ago, there were people that were listening, but not much has changed. And then when Kaepernick was kneeling about this four years ago, still not much was changing. And now, in fact, it was dividing the country more because people were trying to sort of jump on the narrative and make it about patriotism and not being patriotic. And now people are willing to listen. And I'm so much more encouraged. Um, it's, it's tragic that it had to come because of another very sad, very tragic incident with George Floyd, but ha that happening during the pandemic when people were paying attention and the video being so graphic, seeing a nonchalant police officer with nonchalant officers right next to them, uh, next to him while they're taking the life out of someone for over eight minutes. It, for people to see that and people to see how comfortable those police officers with that, it made it so that people are willing to protest, willing to take time out of their schedule, and they're willing to listen. Um, I'm so encouraged by the fact that there's more. The protests in L.A., the protests all over the country are not just black and the black and brown community anymore. The majority is starting to understand that they need to listen and need to be a part of this to be on the right side of history because um, it, it, you know they've had it, whether or not people want to agree with white privilege as being a thing at all, they're realizing that they've never had the the hurdles that have to be faced, the everyday issues that the black and brown community go through. He's James Blake. He's an ESPN 10 analyst, and, uh, you know, he's got a lot to say, okay? Look up <laughs> his life. He knows what's going on. Thank you, James. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. You know, it's funny that uh, – I, I know it's funny that tennis has become such I, – I just think that for Naomi, it's so interesting to think that she's even chosen to do this at all. She could have easily just said, yo, I'm good. I'm trying to win the daggone U.S. Open here. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Y'all put me through the most as it is. Y'all daggone, y'all out there, you know, dogging on her heritage. Oh, is she really black? Is she Asian? You know, all this mm -hmm. other stuff. You know what I mean? And she comes out there and says with zero words, at least spoken words, you know, she's discussed it since then. But you're right. The mask, brilliant move. Stroke of brilliance, quite frankly. Yep. Mm-hmm. She's smart. Anyway. Yeah. Coming up, is. the NFL kicked off tonight in Kansas City, Missouri. That's my mama's hometown. But is the league doing enough to address social injustice? I can't even say social injustice yeah. with a straight face anymore because it's on social. the screen all the time. Mm -hmm. Social injustice. Social. It's the intersection. Goodness, I can't even speak English. Inequities. <laughs> the intersection, where sports and social justice meet. Proudly presented by ESPN Audio and the Undefeated. Intersection on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. I mean, the NFL's had an interesting day so far. Like, basically, they had to figure out whether or not they were going to do basically everything or nothing. And they did some level of both. I mean, you tried out Chloe and Halle. You're trying to kind of use the Beyonce cover to, you know, make sure that nobody gets mad about who's singing the national anthem. Mm -hmm. I didn't see no parts of no Lift Every Voice and Sing. It was Alicia you know, Keys. That's what I do know. I didn't see it I mean, either. I heard that. I don't know about that second verse. That's always the big joke, but nobody seems to know it, and it certainly mm -hmm. wasn't on TV. Mm -hmm. But the Texans stayed in the locker room for both anthems. That was interesting. The Chiefs players locked arms. Um, Alex Okafor of the Chiefs, he knelt and put up a fist. I didn't see none of this. Maybe I was just looking <laughs> off on my screen at the time, but that did not seem to be highlighted on the, on the telecast. 
um, personally that I was watching. And there were boos during the what the moment of silence. How do you boo a moment of silence, Al? Yeah, a show of unity. I just, just how unity. I mean, it's Missouri. Like you know, I, I'm not begrudging your mother's home state. I oh, have family trust from me. Kansas I this from and my from Missouri. Mama, what goes on in Missouri? Of course, yeah, yeah, for sure. My all of my in-laws, my entire extended family is from Missouri. Um, so you know, you got to consider the source, right? There's a reason that the president uh, goes to SEC college football games right. and not the ones in the Pac-12. So I just think that uh, this is sort of on brand. But again, I like I would love for someone post game to sort of interview what someone that was booing and say what exactly what what a part what yeah. part of unity is controversial to you or political? <laughs> Whose man's is this? You know, but I mean, look, Missouri is Missouri, and I, I get it. But I mean, to be clear, though. This was a relatively, I don't want to say groundbreaking, because I think that sounds a little too sort of binary, but let's be real about what we're looking at here. We've got Pat Mahomes, Super Bowl guy, you know, MVP. We've got Deshaun Watson, who just signed a huge deal, and we're just coming off what the undefeated labeled as the year of the black quarterback. This is a significant matchup. If this is any year other than 2020, I think we're looking at, a different sort of lead up and importance level, frankly. I think there's something to be said about the story of the black quarterback getting kind of swallowed, you know, because of the larger issue of, you know, racial equality and so forth, which is fair. But it, it, it's unfortunate because we can't even really look at this for what it is from a football standpoint. Yeah, and I think, too, some, I, mean, I, 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 want, I want to play devil's advocate here and say that a little bit of that is maybe some of whom – those black quarterbacks are I, I mean I yeah. think it's significant that we've got 10 that are starting but most people would not remember that like one of them is Tyrod Taylor and yeah. one of them is Teddy Bridgewater um I I think that the the prevailing sort of storylines are are going to be your Mahomes and Watson as they should based on uh their and Lamar Jackson uh and then Cam of course going to arguably like the whitest city in the entire world <laughs> world um as you know unapologetically cam newton so i think those those are sort of dominating uh but i i also do wonder a little part of me the skeptical part of me also wonders if it's because you know underneath the surface there's this belief that they feel like they have to do right by black quarterbacks especially in 2020 and that some of them are sort of getting the nod ceremoniously if you will and will have the plug pulled on them sooner rather than later which is a reasonable argument based on what we've seen in history you know that is that is a reasonable argument. I'm glad you brought up Cam Newton. I'm glad you brought up Cam Newton though, because I don't think that thing's going to go the way people think it's going to go. Man, I you think mean, it's going to go poorly? I I think it's going to go well, but I think the parts that are going to go poorly are not going to sit well with that fan base. I think they're going to have to wear it. I mean, you come off of that many years of Tom Brady, that much success. If Cam Newton walks in there and let's just say they start off four and zero, all right, and then there's you know. TikTok videos or whatever of him dropping N-bombs with his friends that come up from God knows whenever that are not really that bad, but will, will offer the kind of criticism availability that the Boston market likes to go in on. I think you're just going to have to wear it because he's going to be that good. I heard people talking on the television today about how he's going to be the daggone MVP of the league. And if that happens, Cam is not going to sit there and act like he forgot that he was black in Boston when that goes on. I'm rooting heavily for Cam simply to see that happen and see how they react. This is going to sound crazy coming from someone like me who's been very vocal about their time in Boston and how much they didn't like it. I do somewhat believe that if he's winning, they won't care if he wears 
like a black fist on his jersey. Like, I don't think I I mean, listen, honestly, I do believe that there is now Boston will be the first people to tell you. And I, I warned David Price about this. He doesn't know me from Adam, but I warned David Price about this, about this at his introductory press conference. I said, you do understand Boston, right? And he was like, oh, play against him, you know, so many times a year. Of course I understand. And I was like, no, you understand what's going to happen the second that you don't start pitching to the potential that they think that you should. And he felt like he was prepared for it. I don't think that he was prepared for it. So I'm going to give you full credit in that if Cam somehow stumbles down a stretch, like he's going to hear about many things. But if he comes out there and lights it up, like they're going to be team Cam Newton. I believe that. His hair alone is a statement enough. And I'm being serious about this. In a place like Boston, that him just being around is a bigger deal than just most people being around, man. You know, that guy showing up on your street after throwing three touchdowns the night before, it's going to be very interesting to see how the Boston market deals with Cam Newton. I'm very excited for it. And I'll get excited about a whole ton of stuff for the NFL. This is one of those things. <laughs> Just saying. Coming up, how accurate was Stephen A. Smith's assertion that white privilege helped Steve Nash and the Brooklyn Nets? Well, get him. I'll tell you how accurate it was. Very. It's The Intersection on ESPN Radio. I'm Clinton Yeh. She's Al Duncan. The Intersection, where sports and social justice meet. Proudly presented by ESPN Audio and The Undefeated. It's the Intersection on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. I'm Clinton Yates. She's L. Duncan. The show is presented by Progressive Insurance, and all guests on the program appear via the Shell Penzoil Performance Line. You heard Stephen A. right there in the open. Steve Nash gets picked up by the Brooklyn Nets kind of out of nowhere. And Stephen A. says it's white privilege. You know what? Let's just go back to it right now. Stephen A. on first take Thursday morning. You know, our, our society... Ladies and gentlemen, there's no way around this. This is white privilege. This does not happen for a black man. No experience whatsoever on any level as a coach. And you get the Brooklyn Nets job. I know that Kyrie and KD have both signed off on this. I know they both support this move. But I'm thinking about a champion that is Ty Lue passed up. I'm thinking about a guy who built the foundation for the Golden State Warriors in Mark Jackson, passed up. I'm thinking about the years that Sam Cassell has served as an assistant, first in the nation's capital in D.C., and now with the Los Angeles Clippers, passed up. And it's for a guy, my God, one of the best guys you could possibly meet in your life and may do a fantastic job, but a guy that has no experience whatsoever, Coming up, we're going to listen to Steve Nash. His response. Well, here's what Steve Nash said before that. Pardon me. He admitted to benefiting from white privilege. Good for him. You know, our, our society has a lot of ground to make up. I'm not saying that this position uh, was a was a factor as as far as white privilege being a factor in this position. But like, I think as as white people, we have to understand like that we are served a, a privilege and a benefit by the color of our skin in our communities, and we have a long way to go. To, to find equality and, and social and racial justice. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I hope that I'm a great ally to that cause. You know, I'm not sure that this is an example that purely fits uh, that conversation, uh, but, I'm, but I, I own it and I understand why that's important to talk about it and that we do need more diversity, more opportunity for African-American coaches. Oh, it purely fits the conversation, except it fits the conversation at a point that I think that 
other people don't realize. I mean, here's the connection for those of you who are forgetting what's happened here. Steve Nash was a consultant for the Warriors. That's when he became friends with KD. He stays in touch, and then he decides when KD and Kyrie have enough leverage as players over their team, hey, maybe there's something I'll check out. Maybe there's something I'll do. The privilege there is in the notion that he would even think this was something he could do and even be in line to try this when he knows full well how much it takes to be an NBA coach and how many people others other than him get passed up. It's not even as much in the fact of him getting it. It's him having kind of the audacity to want to do it at all because this is not the level of hope and self, I don't even know, determination that oftentimes we are given in these spaces, L. That's the kind of crazy thing about it. It's like, how dare you? Not that he shouldn't, but that's just not the kind of motivation that I think a lot of black folks feel that they have the space to even believe about themselves. Yeah, this is this is. Ugh. I'm a little bit conflicted about this situation, though, because I think that on the one hand, like it's egregious what they did to Jacques Vaughn. I, I mean, I believe that. Yes. Right? Who is the assistant coach turned interim coach uh, when they fired Kenny Stills, who look what he did. Right. Like, look what he was able to do for this. I'm sorry, Kenny Atkinson. Look what he was able to do for this team, this ragtag team of players that many of whom were either injured or opted out or had COVID. Like they were, what, seven and three in the bubble. And yeah, sure. okay, they got swept in the first round, but nobody expected them to even make the playoffs. Uh, And the idea that he would get passed over someone that seems to be really well liked by his team, the the fact he would get passed over for someone with no experience is really hard to swallow. I will say on the other side, though, it feels specific to the Nets. The Nets did this before with Jason Kidd, who last I checked yeah. is black, right? He had zero experience and came uh, out of nowhere and became judges? a coach. Yes, Jason Yeah, Kidd right? In the racial draft, we, we got him, right? Okay. Yep. Um, Second round uh, pick probably, but, you know, got him. <laughs> right. It's not only just his relationship with Kevin Durant from everything that I've heard. It also is the relationship with Sean Marks, who's the Nets GM and played with him in yeah. Phoenix and had been courting him for some time. And Steve Nash was very hesitant and reticent, really, to, to join a team full time, which is why he's become a de facto soccer analyst and owner over the last few years, as opposed to to do anything more than than taking on consultant duties. So. I don't disagree that there are many instances where these coaches sort of are benefactors of white privilege, uh, but I'm just, I'm not so sure it's a clear-cut case of it here. There's no clear-cut cases of white privilege, though. That's why it works the way that it does. It's because we can't just go to a court of law and say, excuse me, Your Honor, do you believe this white man is benefiting from the basic systems of you know, oppression that exist around the court, around the country? Jury of your peers. Oh, wait, the entire concept of jury of your peers gets to the point about what privilege is. I mean, so, like, it's difficult to say in any singular instance it is or it isn't. And the larger notion is that of this is important. It doesn't, it's not a matter of blame. It's a fact. That's the main thing. It is not Steve Nash's fault, necessarily, that he is in a position that he is. That's not even what anybody's saying. The point is about acknowledging this so that all these owners and all these directors of player personnel or team presidents or whoever it is that may or may not be hiring a head coach understand that if you're going to use an excuse for every singular person, that is the reason why it ends. Uh, it could continues to happen the way that it does. Cause there's always a reason in the moment. There's always a good excuse, but overall there never is a good excuse for us. And that's what Stephen A was saying. I don't think it was that shocking at all. Al. Yeah. I mean, I certainly don't think that it was shocking. Um, I just, again, like I have a, a hard time sort of, 
with this specific situation because these are nuanced situations and you're right there it's never completely cut and dry even in situations where i think it's incredibly cut and dry when we're seeing things like white privilege there's still an entire faction of the population that would argue that as well and come up with a million reasons that it isn't um it just feels like more than anything this felt even more egregious because they passed on a black man to hire a white man with zero you know coaching experience in the nba and because of where we're sitting right now uh, with NBA head coaches and there being a dearth of, of black head coaches and the fact that two of them were fired in just this offseason alone and, and it doesn't stand to reason that you're going to replace uh, either one of them. Billy Donovan looks to get one of these opening jobs, right? So I do understand uh, that it's a yeah. it's a good old boy network and it feels that way. I always use Chan Gailey in the NFL as one of my prime examples. That man has failed at every single level and somehow at 70 years old just continues to find jobs. Like To me, he is a clear-cut uh, idea of white privilege and systemic racism because the idea that people are comfortable with him and they it's the monster that they know and they're familiar with him um i just don't feel i don't my gut reaction in this instance was uh they, they're going for name recognition like they're being sort of you know they're pandering they're to kevin durant yeah they're being the nets they did it with with jason kidd they're being the nets they're pandering uh to kevin durant they're trying to get him to stay they're trying to show him it's his team they let him hand pick who he wanted as a head coach like this feels just a little bit more nuanced than I think some other situations typically do. Okay. This is me steering directly into the game. <laughs> I see right. you, but Look, I mean, like the bottom line is that, like, yes, it's, I mean, again, this is not always a binary, folks. It's about the society. It's about the environment that allows for these things to happen. And, again, indication of discrimination is not always a placement of blame on every white person within earshot. Okay. Understand that if you do not take immediate offense to the concept of white privilege existing, perhaps you can understand how it comes into play and sure. not just use it as a scarlet letter that indicates something has gone wrong. This is the problem with the conversation more largely is that people can't understand why things matter as much as whether or not they do. But, you know, that's what we're here for. The Intersection on ESPN Radio. She's Al Duncan. I'm Clinton Yates. <sighs> you know, and coming up next, listen, I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to start talking about it now because Serena is playing and it's not getting better. And that's making me very anxious. But coming up next, we're going to have to talk about one of the most important people. Jinx. In my life, who's John Thompson Jr. You might know him as the head coach of the men's basketball team at Georgetown University. Well, he passed away and they put him in the ground this week. And if you haven't seen it, Alan Iverson had a very, very thoughtful post about it on Instagram. Anyway, coming up next, we're going to talk about Big John. The Intersection, where sports and social justice meet. Proudly presented by ESPN Audio and The Undefeated. It's the intersection on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Elle's picking the songs these days, apparently. The show is presented by I Progressive I did not pick Insurance. this song, but I'm into PM Dawn. Hey. And all guests on the show have appeared via the Shell Penzoil performance line. We've had a selection of humans that have come on the program today to make things better. Howard Bryant joined us, ESPN senior writer. We talked about Boston and... He's not even watching the NFL because he's focused on Naomi and Serena L mm-hmm. talking to you. Who's doing what right now? Who's doing what right. right now? Playing her very, very good-looking kicks off right now. Okay? Don't get me started on that. LZ Granderson, ESPN 710 LA, as well as the Los Angeles Times. He joined us as well to discuss the NFL and the NBA in terms of voting and how that 
you know, sort of correlates with the rest of all this in terms of the social justice movement and how we've got to back up what we do. James Blake, ESPN tennis analyst, joined us to discuss, you know, not just his life. Those of you might remember, he had a very famous situation regarding the um, NYPD and a case of mistaken identity. He was put on the ground. It was just an ugly situation. And, you know, where tennis is these days. And Sarah Barsha joined us, ESPN Texans reporter, to give us an update on what's going on in Thursday night football in the opening weekend of the NFL. What did you think about the guests, though? Yeah, I thought they were awesome. Um, I, you know, I thought that Howard Bryant sort of talking about what to expect from Cam Newton and uh, owning his full blackness uh, was fantastic. And LZ really talking about this drive to make sure that the most vocal leaders in our sports community are also engaged citizens and voting, uh, which I think is incredibly important, especially after that story came out that the NBA players only 20% of them were actually registered. So uh, awesome uh, contributions to the show today. Yeah, absolutely. So I think right now it's time. Yes, it's a different world from where you come from. So Clinton and Nell are here to drop knowledge to help you navigate these cultural and social streets. Welcome to The Curricula. Well, you're listening to The Intersection on ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio is brought to you by Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. I'll just take this time to talk about one of my favorite people of all time. His name is John Thompson Jr. For a long time, he was the head coach of the Georgetown men's basketball team. For before that, he was the head coach of St. Anthony's in the District of Columbia, Northeast D.C. And what people think about when they first toss to JT is they think about what happens when, you know, a guy like that makes it to that stature. They think about the fact that he won a national championship. They think about the fact, well, they forget the fact that he coached the last Olympic team that was made up of amateurs. And then when they got beat by the Russians who were made up of pros, they said, forget this. We're going back to the dream team. John Thompson was that coach that they hung out to dry. They got a bronze at that Olympics. People think about the fact that he was a commentator for college basketball for many years. And so people got to know his voice over the course of the you know, decades. People think about the fact that he was a big black dude who everybody knew because he ran the Georgetown Hoyas. And the Kenty cloth jerseys, all the cool stuff, every single thing about the gear that represented the rest of the country, well, Big John was at the lead of that. What people don't think about and what people forget about all the time is that John did this in 80s and 90s D.C., and if you don't know what 80s and 90s D.C. was like, I, I can tell you, because that's what I grew up in. And when I tell you that he was the best thing we ever had in terms of any sort of role model, I mean, it had nothing to do with no basketball, to be quite frank. Y'all want to throw around these stories about him taking down drug kingpins and telling people this and telling people that. It wasn't about that, man. What it was about with John was this is how we build our community. And this is what we're not going to do to mess it up. That's why he spent so much time trying to make sure, for example, that freshmen didn't talk to the media their first year so they learned something about the process. That's why his graduation rate was so important. That's why he didn't take no mess from nobody for no reason. And that's why he was an innovator in terms of how the game of college basketball grew through his contributions to the Big East as a conference and through his contributions, quite frankly, to Nike in terms of what they did from an apparel standpoint. You do not understand how important John Thompson was. You know why? Because he didn't necessarily affect your life. And it affected mine. My father took me to Hoyas games to start my career as a sports fan. And he said, Clinton, that's the team we root for. And that's the coach. 
And the reason why he said that is because John Thompson put one message forward that was important to me and half the reason why you're hearing me talk on this microphone today. It was very simple. We can do it ourselves with our own people and we can do it at the highest level and we don't have to take anything from anybody. It is impossible for me to explain how important that is, especially when you're a young boy growing up in D.C. and you're scared every time you come home on a school on the train because you know you got to fight somebody and they might have a gun. You don't know what that's like. And you don't know what it's like when you think that maybe that dude, that one dude who goes to basketball courts that you go to, that your friends go to, that your friends' friends as coaches and uncles and all those people go to, and you see him and you say, yo, mom, Dad, I saw John Thompson today. Just looking at that man in D.C. was enough to make you feel like you could do something with yourself. I don't even got to get into all that stuff about how he saved Allen Iverson's life and everything else he's done from a standpoint of just being what we were in the community. John Thompson is the most important black man in the history of D.C. sports, and it's not close, okay? You don't just build something like that because you happen to be smart or you happen to be a good recruiter or even – happen to have cool clothes for your kids to wear. You build it like that because you care and because you're that good. So when you hear people talk about Hoya paranoia and talk about all this stuff regarding, oh, they were so intimidating and nobody could understand how they were playing so in your face with 40 minutes basketball and all that, man, forget all that, okay? John Thompson was a motivator. And what you were scared of, we aspired to be, and not because you were scared of it, but because it meant something to us. That man could walk into any room in America and everybody would listen to him. And it wasn't just because he was 6'10". It's difficult to think about now because we don't put people on those kind of pedestals. And we've already had a lot of these so-called Mount Rushmore places taken up on the, you know, whatever, on the display. But let me tell you, there are a lot of brothers my age right now who look back at Big John and they don't think about anything other than the best possible example of what happens when you just do it right and you do it the way that you want to. So if you're listening out there, black America or anybody, understand the example he set. You can do it your own way. And you can do it with you want, whoever you want. And it just might work. And it just might be the best thing that ever happened. I'm done. No, I think that's awesome, Clinton, to share that, um, especially as someone who is so greatly impacted because – a sort of a peripheral understanding of John Thompson and obviously his resume and being from Atlanta. I mean, when I think of John Thompson, like the thing that stands out to me the most is after he won his championship and sort of the audacity of the reporters to say like, what's it like to be the first black coach and for him to just be like, I've been the first black coach to have the opportunity to win a national championship and like what that meant. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, was 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 really remarkable and the idea that he did so much for so many people and still they tried to sully his name and and uh and and uh i think it's really special that you shared that it was funny i saw i know we have we're running out of time but i i saw someone compare what he did to basically running the underground railroad yo and and that's essentially you know really what you just sort of uh explained there the impact that he had on the black community not just nationwide but specifically for kids like you growing up in the area I called my father after I heard the Big John pass, and he said one of the reasons why he took me to those games is that it was important for him to see us achieving at that level. Mm -hmm. And he said that what he liked about what John Thompson said was that he's not trying to teach his kids how to win on a basketball court. He's not just trying to teach his kids how to win even in the classroom. 
He said the thing that stuck with him and the reason why he wanted to make sure that my life and his life, as in my dad's, were a part of what John Thompson preached is because he said this. Big John was trying to teach kids, and this is what John said, how to win at the game of life when everybody else is cheating. That's mm-hmm. what's happening. Big John, rest in peace. Freddie and Fitzsimmons is next. It's the intersectional ESPN Radio. Have a good night.